Well, good morning. Mm, let's try that again. Good morning. All right, there we go. I feel better now. So I was like, surely I'm not the only one excited about being here this morning. It is a great day to be here. I am thankful for our worship team, for Pastor Corey and leading us. Again, we are still recording these services. This is actually the point where we do start recording. Um, so uh, let me welcome everyone who will be watching this at home uh, later. Uh, as you can see, we are on the island of Crete today. Uh, that's not true at all, um, although that would be very interesting for us to be on location. Uh, that's something I've seen other pastors do as they've preached through different messages and thought, man, that must be fascinating to see and to sit in the spots where a lot of what we read in Scripture uh, actually took place. And so that is prayerfully a, a goal and a heart and desire to uh, visit some of the, what we would call the old world and to see these actual locations. And so anyway, another story for another day and later. So anyway, in the meantime, we are back in our study of Titus this morning. We are again calling this series Letters from the pastor. This is where we are studying through Titus and First and Second Timothy, and so clearly we have started with Titus. And what we are seeing uh, through the series is we are seeing Paul's words to a young pastor who is trying to lead and trying to shepherd uh, some young churches on Crete. And so we're actually going to wrap up chapter one today. Um, and then continue to move on into Titus in the weeks ahead. Now, we are coming off, if you were here this past week, we are just coming off of talking about the need and the qualifications for biblical and God-honoring leaders in the church. And we said that what we are looking for in the church are biblical and God-honoring men that we can call elders. Now, in Picking up in that same theme, Paul will now address the fact that not only does the church need sound leaders for sound doctrine, but the church, uh, in order for the church to be sound in the faith, leaders in the church must be willing to confront false teaching and confront false teacher. So this morning in Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, we are going to be hitting on the topic of confrontation within the church. Now, this is actually an important topic for us to discuss, and I believe one that was important for Paul to share with Titus. You see, many in the church have zero desire to handle confrontation. In fact, we try to say, I am not a, a person who deals with conversation or confrontation because I am more of a peacemaker, if you will. And so we try to hide behind the fact that we are peacemakers in order to hide behind the fact that we have zero desire to handle confrontation. Yet the reality is many of us are afraid of confrontation. And so what we would rather do within the church and dealing with brothers and sisters is we'd rather turn a blind eye to whatever the issue may be and even sweep it under the rug as if it never happened. But as we are going to see today, there is a need for biblical confrontation. So you see as the faithful in the church, we need to see ourselves as spiritual physicians, if you will. In other words, we must be able to diagnose doctrinal illness, whether it be sin or whether it be false doctrine or even false teaching, and then we need to willingly remove it from the body to ensure the health and the life of the church. You see, when we look through the Bible, 
The Bible is filled with warnings and concerns about false teachings and the danger false teaching and false thinking can be to the people of God. You see, Jesus, in speaking of false teaching in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, warns us that we are to beware of false prophets. In Acts chapter 20, verse 29, Paul, in speaking to the the crowd and to the local church, said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. It would be Peter in writing in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. He says these words, false prophets arose among the people, and therefore there will be false teachers among you. We go on even further and we see John in 2 John, chapter, or 2 John verse 7. He says these words, For many deceivers have gone out into the world. You see, as believers in Christ, we as carriers and ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have been called to the ministry of reconciliation. We have been called to the ministry of rebuke. We have been called to the ministry of comfort. And yes, we have been called to the ministry of confrontation. So as we're looking into our text, Paul will now address the need for both rebuke and confrontation. He will then address these particular false teachers who need to be stopped in their tracks and their mouths need to be muzzled. And then he will go on to describe these false teachers as divisive, deceived, and defiled. Now, just as we are going to read in Paul's words, we cannot ignore false teachers. We cannot sweep confrontation under the rug. We must be willing to confront one another as the family of God, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Because we have to be willing to love one another enough to be able to confront each other when what it is that is being said or what it is that is being done is wrong, especially when it is biblically wrong. So as we're going to see in our text today, Paul is clearly going to dive into how we as the church are called to handle confrontation. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would invite you to turn with me to Titus chapter 1. We are going to begin reading together in verse 10. And once you have found your place, if you can and you are able, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Now again, these are Paul's words to Titus and to the church. In Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, Paul writes, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are 
are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you right now, Lord, thanking you so much for this day. And Father, we thank you for the opportunity that here in these next few moments we have to worship you through the study of your word. Lord, we ask and pray now that as we take these next few moments to understand more about your truth, Father, we pray that you and you alone would be glorified. Father, I pray that in these passages that we have, not only would we see the need for confrontation, but that we would seek to see the need for grace in conversations that may need to take place. Father, I pray that as we look upon this passage today, Father, may we reflect upon our own lives in areas where we may need to be confronted. Father, I pray that you would rebuke us. Father, help us to see our own error. And Lord, may we seek forgiveness, may we seek reconciliation, and in our actions and our words, Father, may you and you alone be glorified. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time. We thank you for the opportunity that we've had to worship you, for the opportunity that we now have to worship you through the study of your word. And Father, we pray that in these next few moments that you would be our focus. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for loving us. Thank you for delighting in us. For it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, what we have here is Paul giving the church to Titus, to the church as well, but then also to us, a clear instruction on who we are to confront. And so the first thing we're going to see in verses 10 and 11 is we are to confront those who are divisive. Now, I know it may seem odd, but our passage today is actually directly connected with what it was we studied a week ago in Titus 1, verses 5 through 9. So when you see the word for in verse 10, you should probably actually circle that word because that's actually the word that connects both of these passages together. You see, in last week, in seeing Titus 1, verse, uh, verses 5 through 9, we saw the importance of appointing qualified elders who are godly in character and sound in doctrine. So then when we get into verses 10 through 16, we now see why biblical God-honoring elders are needed within the church. You see, it is possible, probably more than likely, that churches are going to deal with false teachers. You see, false teachers are personable. They are persuasive. False teachers are attractive, and they are ambitious. False teachers are the, the teachers that we see who will teach and give us enough truth in order to deceive us away from truth and therefore deceive the immature in faith. False teachers are clever enough to fool the gullible that are within the church. Yet as we do a closer analysis of false teachers, if we look and listen hard enough, we will begin to see the disease of deadly doctrine. So when we come back to our text, we see in verse 10 that Paul tells us that there are many 
So Paul, in speaking to Titus, is actually acknowledging that there's not just a few false teachers in Crete, but rather there are many false teachers in the churches around Crete. In fact, Paul would probably argue at this point that some of these false teachers have actually risen to some sort of degree of prominence or leadership within the church. And so Paul goes on to describe them as insubordinate and empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Now, in calling them insubordinate, Paul is speaking of their attitudes and how they are rebellious against God. He then calls them empty talkers, which is Paul's way of, of addressing their actions and how their actions do not match their words. So what Paul is doing here is he's teaching us that false teachers are rebellious and egocentric in spirit, and that spirit that is within them now produces words that are useless. In other words, false teachers are people who are a lot of show and yet have no substance. These are false teachers who go through the motions looking good, saying a lot of words in order to sound good, but their words are empty because their words are not grounded in the Word of God. Now, what Paul does next is he takes us to what I believe may be the most dangerous characteristic of false teachers. He calls them deceivers. So you see, they deceive not only themselves, but especially of others. You see, these false teachers can and will disguise their personal ambition and their agenda in the trappings of piety and prosperity. These false teachers are the type of people who will use their status in the community and use their status within the church in order to lead people away from the truth of God and to ultimately tear down the church. Paul then tells us that these leaders are of the circumcision party. In other words, these particular false teachers on Crete, they were actually uh, Judaizers who tried to convince the church to believe in a Jesus plus theology. Now, there's a problem with this particular theology. You see, when it comes to faith in Jesus Christ, there is simply Christ and Christ alone. This is not a Jesus plus theology that we believe in. This is not in order to come to faith, in order to enter into the kingdom of God, you have to first, you have to believe in Jesus, and then you have to do this, this, and this in order for Jesus to accept you. You see, if you do the spiritual mathematics here, a Jesus plus theology is actually subtracting from Jesus Christ, not adding to him and to his glory. What Paul then tells us is he says this particular teaching from the false teachers, it was actually corrupting individuals, and according to the text, he says, and it was upsetting whole families. In other words, what was being taught was producing a man-centered message where instead of being focused on Jesus Christ, these teachers were focused on their own accolades, on their own adoration, and their own accomplishments. These teachers were coming in and saying, look what we have done to help 
Jesus Christ. If it wasn't for us, Jesus wouldn't be here. Now, many of us would probably mock and laugh at that, but here's the reality. Many of our churches today take that same posture when it comes to missions. We think that when we go on mission trips, we are the cavalry that is riding in to save the day. We go on a one-week mission trip where we serve very little, and then we come back saying, look at all we accomplished, and look at all we did, and never once do we give glory to God and what it is that He has done. You see, it is because of this false teaching, the greatness of Jesus Christ gets ignored. At worst, Jesus Christ gets denied. So you see, false teaching during Paul's day, speaking to Titus here at Crete, it was ruining the unity of the church. This false teaching that we're in these churches was now ruining the church's witness in the local community, and ultimately it was doing its best to ruin the great name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So Paul pulls no punches here. He says that these particular teachers, according to the text, must be silenced and ought not to teach. Why? Because their motive for teaching, according to Paul, was for shameful gain. And they were using their ministry, they were using their teaching for their own personal ambitions. They were using it to gain money and to rob the people. They were using it to ruin people who did not necessarily agree with them. And they were using it to misinterpret the Bible in order to make sure that the words of Jesus, that the word of God fit to their personal desire and their personal whim. You see, it's at this moment when looking at this passage, we today need to be careful because the reality is this. Our motives can and will ruin our personal ministry. If we don't do a spiritual checkup, if you will, our motives, our own pride will damage the spirit of unity within the church. Our personal motives, our personal pride, when apart from the will of God, meaning the will of God is excluded from what it is that we are doing, it will ruin the witness a church has in the local community. You see, this is why Paul warns Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 5. He says that these people, they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. Now, we're going to talk more about that when we get into 1 Timothy as we continue to walk through this series. But what we need to see here is this. As believers in Christ, looking upon these false teachers, we ourselves need to be on guard against entitlement. Even when confronting someone who is divisive, we must examine our own hearts so that we ourselves don't develop false motives. You see, it can't be about us. It has to be about God for His glory. 
We move from there in the verses 12 through 14. We've already seen that we're to confront those who are divisive, and now we see that we are, as believers in Christ, supposed to confront those who are deceived. Now again, Paul's words here are strong, direct, and yet at the same time strategic and difficult to refute. And so by the time you get to verse 13, we now see what can be called the heart of confrontation. This is where Paul says these words to Titus. He says, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith. You see, when we are hearing our teachers as students, we need to listen carefully. We need to weigh what it is that we are hearing with the scale of God's perfect world, a word which should be our standard of measurement anytime someone proclaims the word of God. Now Paul goes on here to invoke the words of one of Crete's own heroes, a man by the name of Epimenides, who was a 16th century prophet, priest, and a poet. In his own words about Cretans, we see that his words are cutting and condemning of his own people. In fact, Paul quotes him here when he says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Ouch. I mean, think about that for a moment. Think about if all of a sudden, and I'm I'm imagining this right now because baseball is back. And so I'm enjoying the fact that live sports are on TV. It gives me much pride to watch the Atlanta Braves. It gives me even more pride to watch the Washington Nationals lose to the Yankees. But what I love about baseball is even in the fact that even with their, the fact there are no fans in the stands, you can hear the music of the players as they come forward. And I used to think to myself, how great would it be if we all had our own intro music when we came in? And I thought, you know, that may be unrealistic. So how much better would it be if maybe as we entered into the room, there was someone there that we loved, that we trusted, that people knew, and that person came up to introduce us? I thought to myself, how great would that be? I thought, how wonderful would it be if before I preached, as Pastor Corey was wrapping up in prayer, I invited Jed Huff, my dear friend and brother in Christ, even though we disagree on college football, how joyous it would be to have him stand before our church, introducing me every Sunday as your pastor. And then I thought, how wonderful would it be if Jed said these words? Southside family, I would like to introduce to you today, standing at six foot two, built like a defensive lineman, our senior pastor, Johnny Harvey. Let me tell you about my brother, Johnny. He is lazy. He is a liar. And you need to know that when I sit in meetings with him, he is an evil beast. All to the glory of God, here is Pastor Johnny. I'm imagining that none of you at this point are going to stand and cheer at that. Now, perhaps if I'm an MMA fighter, that might be a pretty good entrance. However, that's not something that we want to hear said of ourselves. You see, the lying was so bad on the island of Crete, that the lying itself was actually characterized. People would say this 
of themselves. They would say, what you are saying, you are beginning to cretinize the truth. In other words, you are beginning to lie. So you see, when people lie to themselves, we can rest assured that they would lie to us as well. Now, Epimenides wasn't done here because, you see, he used the phrase evil beasts as well. Now, evil beasts were actually people who were, uh, people who were controlled by their own appetites, people who were controlled by their own passions and their desires, and they were willing to rip apart anyone who stood in their way without thought or without reason. Now, when you go back to Titus chapter 1, verse 5 and 9, 5 through 9, we see that this is actually opposite of the biblical elder. You see, what Paul is describing here in, in verses 10 through 14 so far is we are seeing people who have no self-discipline. They have no control over their own lives, and they feed and feast at the expense of others. Now, what's interesting to note here is, again, this word came from one of their own heroes, this word came from one of their own people. And so all Paul adds at this point is saying, this testimony is true. Now, if I could go back to my example of Brother Jed introducing me at that point. By Paul adding the words, what you just heard, this much is true. That would almost be like Pastor Corey, as he was ending his prayer and listening to this introduction of me, walking back up and saying, everything you just heard Jed say. It's true. I've seen it. I've experienced it. You see, Paul understood these words about the Cretans. And so there was nothing more that needed to be added. But then notice what Paul does again, coming back to verse 13. Verse 13, we see Paul's pastoral solution to all this. He says that we are to rebuke them sharply. Now again, Paul is firm here. But yet normally and sadly within our churches, the church has actually been lax when it comes to confrontation. We have been hesitant to deal with crisis, but the call is clear that like a surgeon cutting away an infectious disease, the church must cut away from toxic teaching. Now it's at this point many in our culture would say, well, who are you to judge? Many of us may be thinking that right now, saying, well, now wait a minute. What truly is the goal of confrontation? If it's just a rebuke and walk away, then that can't be the goal. So what is the goal? Well, Paul tells us in his second part of the pastoral solution, he says this, that they may be sound in the faith. In other words, notice the goal of Paul's rebuke. The goal is redemptive. So you see, as Christians, we operate in order to liberate. We confront in love in order to release the deceived and to release the deceiver from the quicksand of spiritual bondage. 
We have to be willing as faithful believers to love people enough to the point, uh, love them enough to point out their error with the hope of their recovery in both spiritual health and spiritual vitality. In other words, if you are a brother and sister confronting someone in their sin, or you are a brother and sister confronting someone in their false teaching, now again, this doesn't mean we uh, nitpick people to death. But what it does mean is as we confront people, our goal and objective has to be clear, and that is for the purpose of seeing that brother and sister redeemed and reconciled for the glory of God. At the same time, if we're the ones being confronted, if we are the ones who are being called out at this moment, that instead of receiving that word with anger, instead of receiving the word with hostility, instead of getting defensive and pointing out that brother or sister's faults, we need to receive it with grace, knowing that the goal is for redemption, because as brothers in Christ, we are fighting for spiritual unity within the church. Now, Paul will go on from here in verse 14, and he mentions Jewish myths. Now, Paul, along with Titus, regularly saw religious speculations that went beyond Scripture. In fact, many of them went against Scripture itself, and they added their own rules and regulations that added more to the man-centered works rather than being a part of the Christ-centered Word of God. Now, these people, these false teachers, would then teach these myths um, to people, and they ultimately were people who taught them that had turned away from the truth. You see, these false teachers once knew truth, and yet now they deny it. These false teachers had lived it, they had heard it, they had almost lived it, and now they leave it, making themselves dangerous to the local church. You see, as the body of believers... We need to keep a close eye for the ones who turn away from the word. We need to keep a close eye on the ones who who turn away from the word and ultimately they turn to what the world tells them to do. We need to keep a close eye on those who turn away from God's truth and they turn towards tradition and they allow it to be their guide. Paul moves on from there into verses 15 and 16. After calling us to confront those who are divisive, calling us to confront those who are deceived, he then moves on to say that we are to confront those who are defiled. Now, Paul then takes this passage in verses 15 and 16 in order to remind us that belief and behavior actually go together. Sound doctrine and good works actually work together, whereas false teaching contaminates the purity of the church. You see, false teaching can stain and destroy pure gospel of grace. Think of it this way. False teaching in a church, whether it's from the pulpit or from our small groups or from wherever it comes from, It's almost like wearing a brand new pressed white shirt to an Italian restaurant and spilling marinara all over it. 
or going out for a Sunday lunch to order a cheeseburger with your children only for them to take their ketchup-stained hands and smear them across the back of your shirt. (laughs) That's why I don't wear white. I'm with you, brother. You see, once the stain is in the shirt, it's hard to remove. Now, Paul goes on to tell us in these verses that to the pure, all things are pure. Now, what Paul is saying is almost like a proverb that is a test of moral character and therefore echoes the words of Jesus Christ. When we read in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus says, There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now, I love what Philip Towner says about this. He says that purity that counts comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, our purity is found in faith in Christ. And so in days of uncertainty, in days where we can get caught up in arguments and bickering and petty frustrations, let us remain focused, heart and soul, to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And may we cling to the purity of the Word. Now, Paul is going to then contrast this statement by telling us, but to the defiled and to the unbelieving. He then speaks of their mind and how it is that they think and how that is defiled. He then speaks of their conscience, which is their ability to make judgments or to make decisions and how that is now defiled. He says, for that person, their entire inner self is now defiled. Both morally and intellectually, this person is defiled. In fact, every aspect of who they are is now infected with the disease of sin. They are completely wretched. They are completely miserable. They are now completely broken apart from the grace and mercy that can be found in knowing Jesus Christ. You see, what Paul is giving us here is actually a good description of what we can call today the doctrine of total depravity. But you see, for the person who is of pure heart, the person who is of pure mind, according to Paul here in the text, his perspectives are now also pure. However, the opposite is true as well. For the person who is corrupt, for the person who is impure in heart and impure in mind, their perspectives are also now corrupt thus leading them to outer impurity. You see, the reality is this. The heart, the mind, the conscience, they are all connected to the tongue. How we think will give way to how we speak. So as false teachers, if we begin to lie to ourselves we will lie to others. When we begin to lie to ourselves, we will inevitably lie about God. This is the problem with false teachers. They profess to know God, but their works deny Him. 
In fact, they trust in their own works. They trust in their own wisdom. They trust in their own righteousness. They trust in their own way of doing things, and yet their lives deny the God that they profess to know. So you see, false teachers in and of themselves become idols. They deny capital T truth that is found in the Word of God for their own way of doing things. They make the claims that capital T truth can ultimately be left up to interpretation. And so they snowball into cheapening the cross. They snowball into cheapening the empty tomb. They ultimately will take away from the work of the Holy Spirit, and then they will justify their words, they will justify their actions by constructing their own false sense of salvation. Now notice what Paul does here. Paul will now conclude with a trio of condemnations and judgments for the false teachers. He says that they are detestable. In other words, this is actually God's attitude towards the false teachers. God himself cannot stomach them. He says that they are disobedient. These teachers are rebellious. They are insubordinate to the ways and the will of God, and their agenda takes precedence over the word and will of God the Father. But then notice the last thing that Paul says here. He says they are unfit for any good work. You see, they are now rejected from good work. They are worthless. You see, for Paul, false teachers are fake. False teachers are not genuine. In fact, if put to the test, unlike the biblical elders that we talked about a week ago, these false teachers will fail. And then one day they will stand before judgment in front of God Almighty himself. But here's the beauty of it. You see, there is grace. There is hope that can be found in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. You see, I love what Charles Spurgeon says at this point. He says this. He says, glory be to God. If my mind and conscience are defiled, they need not always be so. There is cleansing. I cannot affect it myself, nor can any outward forms do it, but God has set forth Christ to be Savior, and he shall save his people from their sins, from their sinfulness too, and whoever believes in Christ Jesus, that is, trusts in him, there is already in him the beginning of purity. You see, confrontation, or the ministry of confrontation, will not be easy, but it is essential. When the integrity of the word of God and the gospel are at stake, we cannot run. 
We cannot simply hide or sweep it under the rug. We have to take a stand for the Word of God, and we have to fight for unity within the church. And so armed with biblical truth, motivated by love, clothed with pure life, we are called to engage the enemy and rescue the captive. Now, I love what Jude 23 says here. It says that we as the faithful are called to save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, we are to show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. You see, faith family, Truth matters. Theology matters. We are called to be defenders of the truth, knowing that it is the truth of Jesus Christ that will set us free. And so my prayer is that we would be faithful and gracious and that we would willingly meet confrontation head on as commanded by the Word of God for the goodness of others, but ultimately for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you right now thanking you so much for this morning. And Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to, to stand before you and to stand before your word. Father, we thank you that you have called us to be flag bearers of your truth. You have called us to be people who in grace and in mercy willingly, willingly confront those who need to be confronted. And so, God, when we hear false teachings, may we stand firm in your word. When we see brothers and sisters who are in sin, may we stand for your truth. And God, I pray that as we take these stands, Lord, help us to examine our own lives. Help us to be people of pure heart and pure mind. Help us to be people who resolve to make much of your name for your glory. And God, as we confront one another in love, Father, may we do so with the goal of redemption and reconciliation in mind. Lord, may the church be a place where we lead our culture in what it means to restore one another in grace. So give us wisdom, give us discernment. Father, may we cling to your truth. And in all that we say and all that we do, may you and you alone be glorified. Jesus, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you. And it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen.